It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 18th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Politicians return to Leicester House today following the Easter recess and with the resumption of dull business, the focus returns to the housing crisis and how the department had an underspend of €1 billion between 2020 and 2022. That's €92 million unspent in 2020, 440 1 million that wasn't spent in 2021 and almost 500 million euro that should have been spent on housing but wasn't in 2022. The 1 billion euro underspend will feed into a Sinn Féin private member's motion this evening that accuses the government of driving up rents, house prices and the number of people who are homeless because of the government's failure to deliver affordable homes. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien, who tables this motion. And a very good morning to you. And thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. A failure to deliver affordable homes or or what you uh, call genuinely affordable homes for working people in your motion. What is genuinely affordable, do you think? Well, genuinely affordable, uh, it means uh, less than 30% of the net disposable income of working people. And Generally, that would be house prices between 200 to 250,000 euros uh, for a standard family home, or it would be rents below 1,000 euros and, and pushing down to uh, 900 or 800 euros, depending on the unit of accommodation. And the problem is, uh, yesterday, the Department of Housing actually published updated figures showing the delivery of both social and affordable housing last year. And the two really stark things from that report is that in three years, Darrell O'Brien has been minister. He has fallen short of his social housing targets by over 8,500 homes. That's almost the same number of households that are currently in Department of Housing funded emergency accommodation. Uh, And last year was the third year in a row where they missed their social housing targets. Probably even more shocking is their failure to deliver affordable homes. So the government had a target of 4,000 affordable homes to be delivered through a number of schemes last year. Uh, Only 1,007 of those have been reported as having been delivered to both affordable rental and affordable purchase. And in fact, in many cases, when you look at the detail of the report, those homes weren't actually available to buy or to rent last year 
and are only now being rented out uh, or, or purchased. And there's a relationship between failure to deliver affordable homes and the overall housing crisis. We heard from the teachers' conferences last week and the week before uh, of teachers being unable to find a place to live, unable to take up jobs, being forced to leave jobs they love uh, or even consider emigrating. Uh, likewise, we see house prices and rents at historic highs. Why? Because this government is not serious about delivering affordable homes. Its targets are too low and it's not even coming close to meeting those. And that figure of a billion euros, I mean, Darrell O'Brien has been blaming COVID, Ukraine, mm. uh, uh, Brexit. In fact, the Department of Education is overspending its capital budget and actually had to, if you remember, controversial pause a number of school building programmes uh, uh, to get additional money. So how is it at a time when both the private sector and other government departments are spending their budgets and overspending, Darrell O'Brien simply can't get his act together and deliver the social and affordable homes that working people desperately need. Okay, but Darrell O'Brien, the minister and the government would argue that they are doing the opposite of that, that they are helping working people to uh, afford homes under the shared equity scheme and the help to buy scheme. But you're saying both of those schemes should be scrapped. Yeah, so the the so-called help to buy scheme uh, was increased uh, to €30,000 by Darrell O'Brien. Uh, and it is universally accepted by everybody, bar government, that this scheme pushes up house prices and makes it more difficult for the vast majority of people to buy. We also know from an independent uh, Rochtus uh, budgetary report that 40% of the people who got that help to buy scheme did not need it, had a sufficient deposit uh, and mortgage to buy a home. That's €200 million Euros that could have been spent to deliver several thousand social or affordable homes uh, at real prices. Likewise, the really controversial uh, shared equity scheme uh, government is claiming that 750 shared equity loans were approved last year. They haven't told us how many were drawn down. Uh, but again, what is clear from all of the independent advice the Iraqi Housing Committee received when government was introducing that scheme, it is going to inflate house prices. Uh, at best, it will lock in uh, unaffordable house prices right across the state, but at worst, it will push them further. The only way uh, to ensure that working people, and in particular young people, both in the public and private sector, uh, uh, can have an affordable roof over their heads, is the large-scale delivery of genuinely affordable homes uh, for people to rent or buy. Uh, and this idea that you can keep pushing up house prices with badly designed schemes that have been proven disastrous in other jurisdictions, I think just shows Fianna Fáil have learnt nothing from the bad old days of the Celtic Tiger. Uh, and a thousand affordable homes last year, in the middle of the biggest affordable housing crisis in decades, uh, we need at least 8,000 affordable homes a year delivered by local authorities, approved housing bodies mm. and, and others. Uh, and I know Those that homes you... are, for, are for people whose household income is of 80,000 euros. Uh, uh, they're for large volumes of, of working people locked out of renting or buying at an affordable price because of the failed policies of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. I, I know that you're arguing that local authorities and uh, housing bodies shouldn't be tied up in bureaucracy and red tape and it should be made easier for them to purchase homes. Uh, in fairness to the government, though, the money was there to do exactly that. Uh, it just went unspent. Uh, if that billion euro had have been spent on housing, how many homes would that have delivered? Well, we actually know the answer uh, uh, now because the Department of Housing themselves have confirmed it. So the underspend in social housing uh, left 8,500 homes behind. Uh, and the underspend in affordable housing left at least 1,000, if not 2,000 homes behind. So that's about 10,000 homes at a conservative estimate. So that's matching the, the investment levels of government with the targeted output that they had. Um, and the problem is, is that 
it is not the fault of the local authorities or the approved housing bodies that this money is not being spent. Uh, I talk uh, a lot to the small and medium-sized builders who deliver these homes, to the local authority housing managers across the country and to approved housing body uh, project managers. And they're telling us the length of time it takes the Department of Housing uh, to approve financing, to approve designs, uh, uh, to allow uh, schemes to proceed is not only holding them back, but actually ultimately resulting in higher prices further down the line. I can point to any number of schemes right across the country where the dead hand of Department of Housing bureaucracy, something Dara O'Brien directly controls, is strangling the life uh, out of uh, those organisations we task with building not just social homes, but affordable homes to rent or buy. So Darrell O'Brien can deal with this. And again, I make the point that the Department of Education overspent its capital budget last year. The private sector, in terms of private homes, exceeded what they originally expected to deliver in terms of housing. How in the God's name is it then the case that Darrell O'Brien cannot spend the money uh, uh, that he has allocated for the delivery of social and affordable homes that are desperately needed? And what's the consequence? Levels of homelessness that we never thought possible. Rent and house prices higher than ever before. Young people being forced to consider emigrating despite the fact that they have good qualifications and good jobs. This is a failure of central government and central government alone. And Daryl O'Brien is running out of excuses. Uh, the capital budget, for example, for his department, again in the first three months of this year, according to the Department of Finance, has a 29% capital underspend, another 90 million euros that should have been spent that hasn't. Like, how much longer are people going to tolerate a minister as incompetent and incapable of delivering social affordable homes as Dara O'Brien? And it's not just a question of building them. I see your motion refers uh, to the use of vacant and derelict derelict homes and uh, read your article in the Irish Independent this morning saying that that could account for 25% of all new public homes. Absolutely and and this is a really crucial point. If if you're a local authority housing manager and you want to buy up uh, some vacant derelict homes in a city town or village in your county, uh, there is no guarantee, even if the Department of Housing funds the purchase, that they will fund the renovation of that property, which makes it very difficult for councils to have large-scale uh, action on vacancy and dereliction. What we would do is give our local authority housing managers upfront money, both for the acquisition and refurbishment uh, of the large volumes of vacant and derelict homes uh, uh, throughout the state. They would then use some of those for social rental, but a lot of them they would then rent on or sell on to affordable renters and purchasers at cost price. And the value of that is not only uh, in general from the figures we have for the Department of Housing, is it cheaper and quicker to do it that way? But you're also tackling the blight of dereliction in our towns, in our villages uh, and in our cities. And of course, it's much better for the environment. We have to start reducing the amount of embodied carbon in new building. Uh, And the best way to do that is to use existing buildings, many of which are more than fit for purpose. But again, here's another very clear example where the dead hand of bureaucracy and badly designed schemes like Creekola Towns aren't delivering any meaningful action on vacancy. And again, that's why, as our motion proposes today on vacancy and dereliction, on new building technologies, uh, there are ways of not only increasing but accelerating the delivery of social affordable homes Mm. in ways that are quicker, ultimately cheaper and better for the environment and our emissions reduction targets in the built environment. The Easter break, uh, I think, uh, took a lot of the heat out of uh, the debate that was raging a a couple of weeks ago on uh, the eviction ban uh, when we were promised a tsunami of evictions, tens of thousands of uh, evictions. Um, Did it happen or will it happen? Well, I've never used the word tsunami. Uh, I understand how the eviction process works uh, and we have always argued that what we're going to see is from March 
into April, May and June, a steady but significant increase uh, in the number of people uh, who are presenting to homeless services. And as homeless services became full, and they're almost full in most local authorities as we speak, then those people would be forced into very difficult situations. That is what's happening. Um, No heat was taken out uh, of the pressure on working families who have those eviction notices. I have now more on my desk than I've ever had before. That is the same with my constituency colleagues. And I'm working with families, with children with special needs. I'm working with pensioners in their 70s. I'm working with young single people and couples, all of whom have eviction notices that are falling due since the 1st of April. And the difficulty is we're scrambling to try and find a, a suitable alternative accommodation for them. Some are overholding. Some have moved in with family and friends. Some have prevented from, uh, to the local authorities for emergency accommodation. But be under no doubt, we are going to see month on month uh, an increase uh, in homelessness. Uh, Darrell O'Brien ended the COVID-19 uh, ban on evictions in April 2021. And in every month bar one from then through to the winter ban on evictions last uh-huh. November, homelessness increased. It is going to get worse. I take no pleasure in saying that. And for me, the worst thing is government knew this. Government had the information and data They put in place virtually no contingency emergency measures to tackle this inevitable rise. I was going to ask you about that contingency. After the fact, to try and deal with the crisis that they're creating. But we had heard that the government would put a a first refusal scheme in place for tenants uh, if they were being evicted and wanted to buy, and if they couldn't afford to, to buy, that the local authority could buy it on their behalf and rent it back to them. First of all, uh, the first refusal proposal requires legislation. There's no sight of that yet. We don't know when it will be introduced. Uh, I suspect what that would be is something like exists in France, where the tenant gets first refusal, but if somebody else offers a higher price, uh, uh, the landlord will be free to offer to them. But also many renters don't earn enough to be able to buy their own home. That's why they're renters, uh, and therefore I'm not convinced that that measure uh, is going to provide any solace for those uh, at risk of eviction. Uh, the tenant in situ scheme where local authorities can purchase for social housing, that has been reopened since April of last year, even though we called for it to be opened earlier. But you've seen the numbers yourself, very, very small uh, and still a that sounds like the line has dropped out on us, unfortunately. Yeah, but uh, uh, we'll leave it there for the moment with our, our thanks uh, to the Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien. This is obviously going to come back on the agenda today uh, and very much so with uh, another private member's motion uh, to, for the government uh, to face down. If you want to make a, a comment on some of the aspects of that or other issues relating to housing or if there's something else that you'd like to discuss with us or just make comment on, you're welcome to get in touch. Our telephone number 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Speaking of housing and building housing, somebody wants to know what about all of uh, the land in Bettystown and Donnacarney and Coke Cross uh, that has been dezoned. Eric and Dundalk in touch saying he wanted to talk uh, about yesterday's discussion that we had on abortion. He says there'd be no need for abortions if the morning pill was freely available to all women, young and old. Thanks uh, for that, Eric. And if you'd like to make a comment, as I say, our telephone phone number is 0419832000 text or whatsapp uh, 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie now we're going to belfast uh, where history is being made uh, as well as being marked uh, because some of the architects of uh, the good friday agreement probably 
all who are still alive have come together at Queen's University and uh, it's a three-day event which got underway yesterday. Uh, Frank Mitchell was there for us and he spoke to former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern. Well, I suppose t- today is down to, to look at the, the past and kind of over these three days it's it's to look past, look present, look future. So I think today looking past, it's just good to be here with all of the people that I know so well that and not alone did I deal with in 1998 but for the 10 years after we were involved right through St Andrews and the implementation of the agreement as best we could up to 2008 so it's good to see them all and good to you know to meet people like John de Chastelaine and, and others that you don't see too often so um, and great to be here with, with George because there was a lot of doubt for a long time that George may not get here so I think this is um this is George's uh, swan song. I think he's going to retire from public life totally after this. So it's just great to be together with them all. Is there a frustration, however, that we are where we are in 2023? Well, I suppose today um, we're, we're looking back. Uh, tomorrow we'll, we'll be in the present. I think there, there, it is sad, to be honest. I don't think but any stronger than that, that we don't have the institutions fully working. Like the election was 15 months ago or whatever it was. And, you know, we, we, we would have liked to see everything in place by now or since the institutions came down anyway and um, it would have been just good to, to have them up and running and I think last week was a lost opportunity but listen that's where it is and we, we, we faced the group of us that are here today faced many knocks 25 years ago and the one thing we always did we we went out and we, we pushed ourselves down and we came back at it again and um, to, to say we got it right on the first time would be ridiculous you know it was several times that we had to come back Tony Blair and I were as you know, back to Hillsborough Castle Buildings, back to Downing Street, back to Dublin, umpteen times to sort out things that we hadn't sorted out in 1998. So I think the, the present politicians should look at it the same. They should say, listen, there's business we need to complete. Um, I don't think there's that much. I don't want to be telling them, but I don't think there's that much to complete. And, you know, this week they have and the Prime Minister here, they have the teacher here, they have the Foreign Minister here, they, you know, they have all the, the current leaders here. So I think it's a good good thing that they're all showing interest and that they'll hopefully resolve these things quickly. But to resolve things, do we have to change the system? Well, I, I think my, my honest view, and you know, I only give it as my personal view, I don't know if it's shared or not, I think the institution should be got up and running in the present form. And then they should have the review clause. We only had one review in 25 years, and that was for St. Andrews in 2006. Um, so that's, what, 17 years ago. So I think then they should, between them, agree the mechanisms where the institutions can, can work. I mean, it is ridiculous that the institutions can be brought down for for issues that have really got to do with constitutions or identity issues. I mean, once it was brought down because of Cash for Ash, which was a grant system, which we know and people around the world can't get their head around that when they hear it, how could you bring down institutions over Cash for Ash, a grant system? Um, and then it was brought down over a related issue to Brexit. Um, so they, they weren't really, you know, constitutional issues at all. Someone said it was brought down over the Irish language, of course. Yeah, well, you, you know, you, you, you can all, the problem is if you cherry pick you can always find something that the cherry that suits you. You know, you can go to a cherry tree and p- pick all the cherries and say, "Oh, this is the one that got me sick." You know, <laughs> so I, I, I think really, um, 
what people need to do is, is a small group from either side um, to, to deal with the outstanding issues. And maybe they're big, maybe they're small. I mean, I've, I've a view that they're not big, but maybe some people feel they're, they're very big. But I still think they're resolvable. And politics is the art of compromise. And when you stand for election, you know, you, you normally are standing for an election to something. Um, I don't remember ever standing for an election and I thought it was standing for nothing. Um, if he went out and knocked at the doors and said, I stand for nothing, I don't think you get elected. So um, I think we, we need to, what we need people to do is, and I, I hope they do, and I wish them well, and I don't, I, I'm not into the, the business of blaming anyone that gets you nowhere in life. It, it's an issue for people to sit down and get on with it, but do it quickly. And that's for the people in Northern Ireland, it's not for anybody else. And the people around the world who are confused by this, I mean, they don't really matter. It's the people here the better and, and they deserve better. That's the former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern. He was speaking to Frank Mitchell of our sister station U105 at Queen's University where this huge event is underway with the architects of the Good Friday Agreement and many people who had involvement in it. As you've been hearing, George Mitchell, of course, was the person who chaired the talks and a key figure in delivering peace in this country. And he gave a keynote address to Queen's University University yesterday. I do acknowledge, with a nod to the great sense of humor that often accompanies it, that people in Northern Ireland are, are quick to take offense. I was made aware of this quite dramatically in June of 1996 on the very first day of the all-party talks. In a large conference room filled with delegates from the two governments and 10 political parties, David Irvine, in a loud voice, shouted across the room to me. Senator, he said, if you are to be be of any use to us, there is one thing you must understand. What is it, I asked. With a smile on his face, he replied, we in Northern Ireland will drive 100 miles out of our way to receive an insult. (laughs) Like you, I laughed, thinking it was a joke. But as I looked around the room, they weren't laughing. (laughs) They were all nodding in agreement. Over the next few years, I witnessed firsthand the unique skill of Northern Ireland politicians and the art of insulting their opponents. But a wise person can always be superior to the insults he or she receives. Wisdom and courage, and grace, and even stubborn desire can help to sow peace and root it down deep in the soil where it can once again grow. So I say now to the current and future leaders of Northern Ireland, there is much in your history and in your politics that divides you, but there also is much that can bring you together, that can inspire you to continue what your predecessors began a quarter century ago. It is not a sign of weakness to resolve your differences by democratic and peaceful means. To the contrary, it is a sign of strength and of wisdom. And And it clearly reflects the will 
of the overwhelming majority of the people of Northern Ireland. Yes, they often disagree, sometimes very strongly. Yes, they may take offense quickly. But it is unmistakably clear that the people of Northern Ireland do not want to return to violence, not now and not ever. Well, resounding support uh, for that sentiment and a uh, huge uh, round of applause uh, for George Mitchell, who was addressing those who managed to uh, attend uh, this conference that's taking place in Queen's University. Certainly a star-studded lineup in terms of looking back at uh, the Good Friday Agreement and those responsible for delivering peace on this island. Uh, one of uh, the people in attendance yesterday was uh, the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. When we, we came to power, obviously, and it's important to say this, I mean, John Major had tried uh, hard. He'd, he'd started a, a process. John Human had been a constant arguer that it was possible. And, I mean, John, I, I remember, you, you know, when I was in the House of Commons as the leader of the opposition and in Parliament, you, when you're going through the, the, the voting lobbies, John Hume would wait strategically for me as I was going through the lobbies and he would back me into a corner and John was someone who who was very persuasive but you know there weren't short conversations right so (laughs) but the thing that he drove home to me the whole time was that it was possible he said I know people tell you it's impossible it's possible and then I, I was explaining to people earlier my, my own family background. Obviously, my, my mother was from Donegal in, in Ireland. But even though living in the Republic, they, they'd been a Protestant family. And I'd grown up with a, the Troubles being very much part of my, my, my youth and my, my, my own personal history. So I was determined for all sorts of reasons to try to do things. And then actually as leader of the opposition, I had met... Bertie Ahern, who at that time, I think, Bertie, the first time I met you, weren't uh, the, the Taoiseach. And I also kind of felt, when I had that conversation with Bertie, there was, there was something I felt that could be done. That there was a, you know, we, we were coming up to the, the end of the 20th century, or a new millennium, there was a new generation taking charge in various places. Um, obviously, we were huge fans of, of, of what President Clinton and yourself were doing in the U.S. Everything kind of aligned. And so, and maybe this was just also the fact that we were new in government and, and hadn't had time to become cynical. Uh, so we just thought, I thought, now let's give this a go. And I remember discussing it with one of my, my, my deputy prime minister, uh, John Prescott, who said to me, I don't know why you're doing this. He said, they absolutely hate each other over there, you know. And I said, no, I'm going to give it a go. And so we did. And so they did, indeed. Uh, they were fresh-faced Prime Ministers uh, back in 1998, Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, that is. We'll hear from the Clintons, I think, later in the programme, both Hillary and Bill in Queen's University yesterday, as was Gerry Adams, former president of Sinn Féin. You talked about magic. Uh, and if there was magic involved, it came from a, a man called Father Alex Reed. And Father Alex Reed reeled against the establishment view. And the establishment view was defeat the Republicans. This is a matter of criminality. This is a matter of gangsterism. Subdue them and we get on. That's how they defined peace. And Father Alex had a different view along with Des Wilson. 
He said, peace needs justice. You need to listen to people. People have the right to dignity. People have the right to respect, and so on. Uh, a turning point for me was in my private meeting with John Hume, which happened 12 years before the Good Friday Agreement. And I've often wondered how, how it took so long, 12 years, from we first met at the invitation of Father Alex Reed. And then uh, Mark has mentioned, and it's crucial, that it was an inclusive process. All the parties were invited uh, to it. That hadn't happened uh, before. Uh, and the agenda, the CLAR, was quite wide and encompassing of all of the issues from constitutional matters through governance, through rights, and, and so on. So by the time we get into government buildings, and we'd been blocked on a number of occasions and turned away on a number of occasions, we, we, we had a fairly much fit negotiating team because we had been negotiating with the Irish government with, uh, and, and Albert Reynolds does not get the credit that he deserves for the role that he, he, he played with Irish America and threw that into the Clinton administration and yourself, Nancy and your colleagues, John Hume, uh, and with a, a back channel into the British government. So the, the ability of all of the participants uh, to agree, I, I think, is testimony to them reading the broad popular opinion, which certainly from the broadly nationalist Republican position was, you need to have an alternative way to go forward. So the Good Friday Agreement wasn't a destination. It wasn't a, an event. It was the beginning of a new journey. It was a, a new journey which didn't define a destination, and in fact, from the, the, the Irish sort of democratic point of view, one of the most important bits of it is that there's now a peaceful way to end English government rule in this island, if that's what the people want through a referendum, whenever that uh, comes, comes about. So I think that was a significant uh, matter for all of us involved, plus all the other uh, equality issues, particularly and the rights issues. That's uh, Sinn Féin President, former President uh, Jerry Adams speaking in Queen's University yesterday. Uh, I hope to be able to get the time to come back uh, to some of uh, that footage later in the programme and to bring you some of the contribution from the Clintons uh, later in the programme, if not today, certainly tomorrow, uh, because uh, well worth listening to, as we all reflect on uh, the events uh, that changed uh, the direction of many people in this country 25 years ago. Before I go to the break now, uh, let me just bring you one comment from James Indrahada about an apartment that he says has been vacant in Drogheda for the last two months. He says, what is going on? Heads should roll uh, these apartments. I take it uh, James feels that they should be turned around much quicker rather than lying idle like that for two months when there's so many people without a home. Thanks for your message, James. Our phone number, if you want to comment, 0419832000, text or WhatsApp, 086 1800 658, email michael at lmfm.ie. 
Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Now to an email uh, to the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, uh, that was also sent on to us uh, by Geraldine, uh, who has written to the Minister because I don't think it's too far off uh, the mark to say that reading between uh, the lines, uh, Geraldine is exceptionally frustrated after the experience she had yesterday. Good morning to you, Geraldine, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, t- tell us uh, about uh, your day yesterday. Um, so my son had his driving test yesterday, just shortly after lunch in Dundalk. And so we spent the morning driving around Dundalk, doing the the, um, the kind of the, the test routes. We hoovered, we cleaned, we did all sorts. So he arrived at the test centre um, the 15 minutes beforehand. And uh, the test, the driving tester came out, looked at the car um, refused to get into the car because the NCT was out of date. Right, that came as a surprise to you, obviously. Well, it was because the the car is actually booked in and was booked in um, straight after the notification was received to book the NCT. So it was booked in. We have a booking reference for the car. So um, as far as we know, and we have checked as well, it's in the system So because I rang the NCT straight away afterwards and they, they verified that, yes, it was in the system. And because of the backlog in the NCT um, testing centres, the first available test was in August of this uh, this year. Okay, this is your daughter's car and she applied my for the My daughter's NCT, car, yeah. yeah. We had mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. put my son on my daughter's car because I drive an automatic car, so he obviously couldn't do the test in it. So we paid for him to be on uh, my daughter's car for a week just so that he would get um, the insurance, so he would get familiar with it. So we had done that. We paid for the test, um, done all the usual things. Mm. And my daughter had even, like, my daughter even has the car sticker, um, you know, um, serviced. It was serviced in February, fully serviced. It's like her, it's like her pride and joy. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, your daughter has booked her NCT, as you say. Uh, That test won't be until August. When did she uh, apply for the NCT? She applied for the test, so she was notified before Christmas. She got on online, and that was the first available date in Dundalk. Right, eight months. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, but you can't do the driving test without the NCT. You paid for the insurance for your son on his sister's car for the week, costly enough. A day off work for you so that he'd have a, an accompanied driver uh, and a day off college for your son, but for nothing really as it uh, transpired. Absolutely not, no. Okay. Uh, I think, uh, as far as I understand it, the RSA have asked the testers uh, to continue uh, to um, ignore uh, the NCT, to waive the requirement, because you are required to have an up-to-date NCT certificate uh, if you're to sit a a driving test. But uh, the problem is with uh, the trade union FORSA, uh, and they've uh, directed uh, the testers not to use a, a vehicle on health and safety grounds because once they get into that vehicle that's their workplace and they've no way of verifying if the car is roadworthy if it doesn't have a valid cert. That's what, so um, to be fair to the, uh, the driving tester, her um, um, uh, female, she was absolutely, you could see that she appreciated or acknowledged that it was frustrating so it definitely wasn't her so I asked her could I find out exactly why? So she said on the 24th of March, they were all instructed not to get into a car without a the valid NCT. But what my problem is, is that so for all intents and purposes, we have no car to insure until that NCT is done. And my son starts, like he works, he, he works through college and he's very good. He pays his way, uh, helps a lot with payment for college. 
So he works evenings, he works days and throughout the summertime. So we're, we live in the countryside. So our plan was that during the summertime, he would have the, have the use of my car at nighttime. So there wasn't a half street pickup because he cannot drive unaccompanied. Mm, okay. So I just found this blank wall. So it was not the driving, not the tester, as I said. She, she definitely mm. had, she was empathetic about it. But um, when we rang then the RSA, uh, they were just, it was like literally like Little Britain's computer says no. So, but I said to her, if, if, if my daughter is stopped on the road, the booking reference that she has from the NCT suffices. So my issue is, why are we creating a backlog with a backlog? Because... Mm. Um, as, so uh, now you're instructed if you have if you have booked a test and your car is no longer since September, since March the 24th if your car is no longer displaying an NCT um, certificate you have to rebook your test yeah. so all of those people who are about to sit their test post 24th of March have to make sure that we have we have overcome and jumped over hoops to get past the NCT backlog because apparently now that's the general public's problem. Well, it appears to be the case. Uh, the Road Safety Authority, though, does appear to want the testers to test drivers, uh, but it's force of the trade union who has instructed the testers not to do it uh, uh, because of health and safety concerns that they have. Well, when we got, so my son got a, um, a, a, um, a certificate, not a certificate, but a, a document so um, the te- so it says A six so so the letter A and six no NCT disc in date the date was my my daughter's NCT was out on the 29th I think of January of this of this year um, and then uh, she had put in the booking time for the you know the reference that my daughter's car would go through the the booking thing so she said uh, fee wavered for next test just to rebook so when we went on to the RSA uh, the person who answered said oh no you have to pay for the test again. Hmm. So I don't know who's telling what. So I, I would completely... That's for the driving test again, is it? Yes. Okay. Yes. So oh, I well, have that, to... well, that's because your son didn't sit the test, I suppose, but the directive came from the trade union. I think the RSA has a, a different opinion. I think we all have a, a, an opinion on the NCT backlog, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but they do say that you can ring and get a, a vacant slot. Uh, was that something that your daughter tried at all? No, my daughter has tried to, to, to go in for the NCT, but we, what we did was we thought we were getting a car with the um, with the driving school, but unfortunately, just with the with the backlog, there wasn't one available. My son took a like a was on a waiting list, and he got something like a five day notice of this availability on the mm. on this Monday just uh, yesterday right. just gone. Okay, so when we went to the driving school, obviously they're very busy people. They didn't have a car for that purpose, so yeah. we okay. had that's what we did so we just put him on my daughter's car thinking it's fine but my issue isn't like absolutely I agree that a car should have its NCT Mm. our cars are taxed they're insured everything is correct Mm. but to to suddenly find yourself now um, as a as a as a uh, an L plate driver, that you can't even sit it now because another another hoop has been put over you. So there's already a difficulty getting a test. There's a backlog even if you get with your with your insurance and you get your your test. You know mm, your yeah. lessons. It's difficult to even get yeah. twelve lessons all in the trot. You, your so son, and your daughter are all doing the right thing, but despite that, uh, you're uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's just no way of getting the test. 
either no, test for all. that matter. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, but if if it were a case that there was a little bit of common sense applied, even a visual check to look at the car and say, okay, well, maybe if the NCT isn't isn't in line, I can see the booking confirmation. Let's look at the thread depth. Have you any indication that your car has been serviced lately? Yes, we have a sticker on the car to say it was serviced last, six weeks ago. Apply some common sense. Okay. Geraldine, we can feel your frustration. Thank you indeed. Uh, most understandable that you are as frustrated as you are given the circumstances. But thank you for speaking to us uh, this morning. Thank you very much. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, uh, thanks uh, to the uh, texter WhatsApper saying, uh, my son did his driving test in Drogheda. He brought his NCT appointment with him. He had printed it off uh, and when he showed it to the testers, uh, they had no issues with it. Thanks uh, for that. He did his driving test in Drogheda. That was some time ago, probably before the directive from uh, the Force of Trade Union to its members not to test people uh, if the car doesn't have of a valid NCT cert. Uh, somebody else says, apply for a cancellation. You'll get one within three or four weeks. My son and daughter-in-law got it that way for their NCT. Thank you if you have been in touch. If you'd like to, make comment 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now to the Labour Party's concerns about uh, the Gardaí using facial recognition technology. And we're joined uh, by Labour TD, Aon O'Reardon, who's his uh, party's spokesperson on justice. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for... Uh, for joining us on the programme. The concerns that you have uh, about facial recognition technology is that it may be introduced at the same time as the Garda body cameras uh, are going to be introduced uh, because that's what the Garda Commissioner is looking for. Well, there's two things really. One, this is about process. Um, this is a major piece of legislation, a major change. But we have the the, the, the body cam legislation going through the Oireachtas, which we are in favour of, which we support. We think guys need to protect it by having, you know, um, cameras on their person that can record exactly what happens in any interaction with the public uh, that is necessary. But at committee stage, at a later stage of the uh, of the legislative process, the minister is going to bring in a new part to the law, which is the which facial recognition techni- uh, technology. So. We believe if we're going to have a conversation about facial recognition technology, it should be a standalone conversation. It should be separate. It should be a different piece of legislation. Because uh, the main reason, well, two reasons really. One is because there's actually uh, EU law coming into effect sh- shortly or being drafted currently, which would probably supersede or p- potentially influence um, the type of facial recognition technology we could, uh, legislation we could have anyway. Uh, and secondly, wherever this has been rolled out internationally, it's been majorly problematic. You can't use it in San Francisco, it's been banned. And when the Met did a, a survey in, in the UK, in London, uh, on the effectiveness of, of facial recognition technology, they found that there was problems with 80% uh, of, of the cases used. Mm-hmm. So this is our problem. I mean, first of all, let's just examine this a bit more. Let's just, let's just chat about this a bit better, more, in, in more depth. Mm-hmm. Let's just throw in an a amendment into a piece of legislation which deals with such, something that's so wide-ranging. And secondly, let's wait for the EU have to say uh, and and tease through the facts and the reasons why so many countries international internationally have moved away from this uh, this type of technology. Okay, and maybe explain that to us uh, in a little more detail uh, because you're not opposed to cameras, as you say. It's what no. the cameras can do. 
Uh, and in theory, what they're meant to do is to identify people that they capture on camera who are convicted of criminal offences. That, uh, on the face of it, would seem a, a very good tool. Yeah, in, in, in terms of the, uh, the body cams, we've seen actually in the States sometimes protects the person that the, that the police are interacting with as well. If, if there's been suggestions of over-aggression or inappropriate behaviour from, uh, from the police force, but then, you know, it, it also protects a member of the public, but certainly it protects the, uh, the guard because we can see that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And who has been maybe aggressive towards them. It gives an accurate depiction of, of what happened in all those in all those interactions. One facial recognition technology, though, you're depending on a piece of software to identify somebody. Um, as to whether they are, you know, uh, are they involved in other crime? Uh, are they somebody that the guardy have been looking for? And it's just not worked. To mm. know, to, to it, wrongly it wrongly identifies. It wrongly identifies people. Uh, and sometimes uh, it's more difficult uh, for people of colour, for example, to be identified. You get more problems like that. Yeah, it, it has a racial bias. But whenever it's been rolled out internationally, now maybe the minister can can satisfy us that no. Uh, our facial recognition technology would be different. Uh, we've learned from, from these other jurisdictions uh, what happened in the mess in the UK was an anomaly. Uh, San Francisco are changing their minds. The EU uh, legislation is not something that we need to be worried about. Maybe he can say all these things mm. in a proper standalone conversation around this technology. But what he's doing is, is throwing in an amendment to a piece of legislation that didn't have anything to do with facial recognition technology initially. And we have major concerns about that. Uh, and it's possible that he, he can say those things because technology evolves. It, it does. And we don't want to be people who are not using tools available potentially for uh, for the guards to do their jobs 
successfully, we, we, we understand that this technology is often used in very sensitive child abduction, uh, child abuse cases. Uh, we understand all that. So we're, we're not in a position here of really trying to be, uh, to be obstructive. But however, when, when you see these red flags from all over the world, and when you understand that the EU are bringing in legislation anyway, it makes much more sense for the Minister to withdraw this intended amendment and to have a standalone piece of legislation that we're, we're, which would be an awful lot more robust and would listen to the concerns, obviously, of ourselves, voices within governments. Uh, I believe the Green Party are, have difficulties around this issue. And in the ECI, Irish Council for Civil Liberties have also said that they have major concerns around this. And when you say that it falls down, it doesn't work, uh, does that mean uh, that completely innocent people have been wrongly arrested for crimes? That's, the, that's what the outside um, assessments, the independent assessment of what happened in, uh, in, in the Met in the UK determined that 80% of those cases were, uh, were based on, um, on, on false evidence. They, they, they were problematic, they couldn't stand up. So, you know, maybe, maybe we can have better technology, maybe it could be a, a, a improved into the future, but what we can't have is this sort of a wedge mentality from the minister that we can throw this into an existing uh, legislative process, hope he just gets away with it, and then in three or four years' time we have a similar problem that the men have, uh, and, you know, it, it's quite clear that we should do an awful lot better work. So we're quite happy to, you know, to have a different process, to have a separate process, to treat this with the, with the, the seriousness it deserves. It's a, it's, it, it's a major change in the way... Uh, that the guys would operate, it deserves a proper a proper scrutiny. Is there a, a cost element to the decision? Because I, I take it, it it would be fairly costly to provide every Garda with body cameras uh, if that's what we're going to do. And if we then, at a later stage, decide uh, that the technology has evolved and facial recognition is a technology worth adopting, they'd all have to be replaced, wouldn't they? I'd imagine, I mean, I don't have an answer for that in terms of the cost, but I'd imagine anybody can would, would only have a shelf life of, of a short period of time anyway because it has to be upgraded and that's the, that's the normal course of things. Okay. Uh, so where's the solution in all of this? The Minister, to withdraw any intended um, uh, amendment, I, I see in the newspapers today uh, that he is intending to, to plough ahead. Um, certainly the Guardian Commissioner has had his view known, um, but... We do legislation, that's our job. Our job is to, is to produce legislation that can stand up to scrutiny. It doesn't make any sense for us to have um, a piece of legislation going to the House which is supposed to be doing one thing, another thing thrown into the mix. Meanwhile, the international experience says that this is a, a problematic area and the EU are also producing legislation in this area as well that could supersede what we're doing, so, or certainly influence it. So uh, the Minister needs to back down, uh, withdraw the amendment, and let's have a proper conversation at a later stage. And how long would that take? Uh, because you're talking about it uh, going into committee and then fresh legislation being drawn up specifically to allow for the facial recognition technology. Uh, that doesn't happen quickly, does it? Well, then we need, well, we need to wait for the EU to, to have produced their legislation. I mean, there, it doesn't really make much sense for us to tell forward with our own domestic legislation when we have EU legislation that is yet to be passed. And that could have implications of what we're trying to what we're trying to do and what we need to do from a, from a legislative point of view is to have these experiences heard at committee stage we need to have pre-legislative scrutiny which is what normally happens we need to have experts come in who have knowledge of what happened in the mess who have knowledge of what happened in san francisco who have knowledge of eu law and who have knowledge of this area and then we can have a a, a proper discussion around it it seems rushed uh, and 
when something has been so problematic and proved, proven to have been so you know so, so difficult to implement, why are we why are we rushing it so much? And the danger is that in a few years' time, um, it'll have seemed to have been a huge mistake when people have been identified incorrectly by this by this piece of uh, technology. Um, I, I take it one reason for rushing it is that the Garda Commissioner wants it uh, to fight crime and some very serious crime, no doubt, uh, at that. Uh, but uh, if uh, the government uh, adopts your perspective or the Green Party's perspective, possibly, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you're, mm. ta- you're talking about next year before that technology comes. Uh, the, point is, the point is to get it right. Like, what if we rush this through yeah. and we have the exact same experience as the Met and yeah. you have a bunch of people who have been inappropriately identified, incorrectly identified, and we're in a worse position than we are now? We can have the body cams, we can protect Gardaí and members of the public by having that. But this is an extra piece of, uh, an extra layer, which deserves an awful lot more scrutiny. Uh, and I think the Minister should appreciate that and do it properly. It's not doing things properly by throwing it in as an amendment into the existing bill. You do it as a standalone piece of legislation. And if they want to put aside time, their own government time or, or committee time for us to do it properly, let's do that. But it's just, it's lazy, uh, it's sloppy and it's potentially dangerous. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I'm sure we'll be hearing more uh, on your concerns and the concerns of others uh, with uh, the resumption of uh, dull business today and over the uh, coming days. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Anytime. That's uh, Labour Party TD Aon O'Reardon, who is his party spokesperson on justice. Now, uh, speaking of facial recognition, uh, Betty Daly saying uh, that uh, there's no camera in the world that would have recognised Jerry Hutch, the monk, yesterday uh, as he came out of court. Uh, I think uh, that's probably well put, Betty, and certainly something that a a lot of people would uh, agree with. I think a lot of people taken aback to a large degree at his uh, appearance, as Betty puts it, with his long grey hair, and his eyes so blue. Thank you indeed, Betty. We'll be talking uh, about uh, that particular case in the next few minutes with Paul Williams. Uh, but just to remind you at home, if you'd like to make comment on the programme, 0419832000 is uh, the telephone number. Text or WhatsApp 086 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll return to Belfast and indeed uh, this gathering of very well-known people reflecting on uh, 25 years of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, This is Hillary Clinton this time. I think all of us know how difficult it was to secure the Good Friday Agreement, how much work and sacrifice it took on all sides to bring about peace and how much effort has gone into implementing its tenets and building a new government in Northern Ireland. The credit for peace ultimately goes to the brave people of Northern Ireland who took risks for peace. I well remember Bill's and my first trip here in 1995 the first time a sitting United States president visited Northern Ireland. And after the Christmas tree lighting ceremony in front of Belfast City Hall, in the midst of that enormous crowd where so many of the people gathered were holding the hands of their children or holding smaller children on their shoulders, we gathered right here in Whitla Hall. Catholic leadership stood on one side of the room, 
Protestants stood on the other. It was not easy for them to reach across that literal, physical divide. It took years of building trust, and it took courage. Hillary Clinton, uh, there were a lot of memories shared. Uh, let's hear a little bit uh, from her husband, Bill Clinton. And so we all worked it out. There were seven Irish groups in, in mostly based in New York City that wanted him to come. And one of them sponsored a conference. They put together a whole speech deal and he asked for a visa and we agreed so I could make the United States look like an impartial body that I would grant the visa for two days, but there would be no fundraising. And everybody knew that a lot of money was going into Ireland from the Northeast United States especially, but not on this trip. We were gonna send a signal that we wanted to be involved, but we wanted it to be positive and we wanted to be fair to everybody. And um, we have two people who are members of Congress here now, at least then uh, Richie Neal, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and Marty Meehan, who years ago became president of the University of Massachusetts, but he was there then. And Peter King called me to wish me well before I left, who became my best Republican supporter because he was from Limerick. And his mother said, if you try to run that president out of office, I'll never speak to you again. <laughs> so eventually there were certain benefits about it. But at the time it was crazy. They thought, I thought it made all the sense in the world because what we were doing is not working. And it, it seemed to me just from the talk that the public was maybe way ahead of the politicians in their desire to have some sort of resolution of this. So I gave Jerry the visa and he kept his word as he always did in dealing with me and the rest is history. And it brought me closer to Tony and he was interested, it meant a lot to me because I loved it when he won on the, his whole campaign platform, you know, was basically consistent with what I believed. And he and Cherie and Hillary and I had an interesting dinner together not long after he became PM. And then I met Bertie and I thought, you know, Bertie had the kind of BS that I always wished I had. <laughs> I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought, I want to be Bertie when I grow up. It was great. <laughs> so we all got along. And that's a big deal if you trust somebody. All right. Not the first time, I'm sure, that Bertie O'Hearn has uh, been accused of BS, as uh, the former American president, Bill Clinton, put it. Much to the amusement of his wife, Hillary, who you could hear laughing there. Now, let's uh, go uh, to the acquittal of Jerry de Hutch and speak to Paul Reynolds. Uh, beg your pardon, Paul Williams, special correspondent with uh, the Irish Independent. A very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Very dramatic scenes in court yesterday, and Indeed, a, a long session in court. Uh, you're reporting in the Irish Independent today that Miss Justice Tara Burns took almost two hours to deliver the court's verdict. 
Yeah, Michael, good morning. Um, yes, it was a very dramatic day. Of course, it was the the, the, the moment of the um, most high-profile gang on Friday of the century so far. Um, and it has it certainly fascinated the public, even the most high-profile criminals, the most high-profile criminal act we have seen in many in, in the history of organised crime here, this assault on the Regency Hotel. And for all those reasons, then we had this former Sinn Féin councillor, Jonathan Dowdham, who became a state witness, and he was in the box for eight days, and that fascinated everybody because he was, he was not a very credible witness. In fact, the court confirmed yesterday that he was a liar, and they also called him a ruthless, base, callous criminal, um, and, you know, there was also in the case these 10 hours of secretly recorded tapes that were played to the court. You know, it was, it, Michael, it was, it was a case that was dramatic from start to finish. It was also a case that was a very crucial case in the whole administration of criminal justice in this country, uh, and particularly the war with organised crime. Um, it was a bad day for the guard yesterday. Um, Jonathan Dowdall, the state witness, turned out to be an absolute liability. Um, he had zero um, credibility. The things he alleged about Jerry Hutch, uh, the court found, were not credible because they used their, they used their, they, they applied their common sense. And that's why it took nearly two hours to read this judgment, Michael, in the special criminal court. Mm-hmm. They just forensically analyze and lay out every aspect of the case as they saw it and how they reached their decisions. Uh, it, and it's incredibly transparent, much more transparent than an armed jury case. But they said that Jowdon, the things he said that he alleged against Jerry Hutch, just didn't have, or was not capable of being proved beyond all reasonable doubt. And so therefore, Jerry Hutch walked yesterday. Now, two of his accomplices uh, uh, and mm. mates, um, Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy, they were convicted of facilitating criminal gang by providing getaway cars after the Regency Hotel attack. Um, they're gone down. Then you've Dowdall and his father, they got the sentences for facilitating the same gang. So there's four people in prison. Uh, two of them are going to go into the witness protection program. The main man himself is in the rooms, sort of, sort of speaking, as a free man today. But having mm. <clears throat> looked at the evidence, listened to Dowdall's testimony, you know, listened to the tapes, one could not but agree with the court that they were right in, in the decision that be- they took. Because of the case that the state took, uh, I mean, it seems ironic to a lot of people that Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy ha- had been found guilty of assisting the Hutch gang to yep. murder David Byrne. Uh, but uh, Mr. Hutch, Jerry the Monk, uh, walks free from the court. Uh, but uh, that's because of the case. Unambiguously, you know, the Hutch criminal gang, the Hutch organised crime group, Pulled out, were responsible for the Regency Hotel. And basically what the judges implied with their view of it seemed to be that when Jerry Hutch came in to clean up the mess, uh, that Patsy Hutch basically organised the whole thing. Um, and But there were other charges there, Michael, and there will be a lot of questions asked about this. There were two very distinct uh, charges that stood out in relation to this case. And that was gleaned from the tapes, secret records, two and one. One, Jerry Hutch talked all the way through that tape about the three Yorks he was throwing up to the real IRA and the dissident Republicans. He was giving them the three AK-47 shoes and other weapons used in the Regency as a present to the real IRA or the continuity IRA in Northern Ireland. Those weapons were then, this was on, the recording was made on the 7th of March 2016. Two days later, the special branch in a surveillance operation watched Patsy Hurt meeting a fellow called Shane Owens in Donegal uh, 
real IRA continuity IRA. I can't remember his one of those knuckleheads anyway. And uh, he came down to collect the guns. The guns were put into the booth this car by other members of the gang. And as he was driving back, he seized them. They were there to prove ballistic and forensic to be the shooting smarter weapons. So there's a clear, clear evidence mm. uh, from Jerry Hutch's own words on the tape that he was in possession of those firearms. He owned those firearms. He was in control of them. That's the charge. It was also clear as well that he was in charge or running a part of a criminal, organised criminal gang, which again is an offence under anti-gang legislation. Now, there were questions being asked as to why he wasn't charged with those other offences, because the judges yesterday said, you know, basically, doing the lines, you read that he could have been convicted of those things, but he wasn't charged with those things. Mm. And that's a question for the DPP to answer. I remember the first time we ever used Supergrass evidence in this country, and the witness protection was introduced. And that was to take on John Kidd again as gang when they murdered Veronica Kidd. Now, three members of the gang became Supergrasses. Uh, and they, one of the rules that were laid down that you cannot accept the uncorroborated word of this, uh, of an, an accomplice. But most importantly, they charged John Gilligan with murder of Veronica Kidd. They also charged him with possession of firearms because they were importing firearms at the time. And number three, they charged him with being a drug trafficker. Now, he was acquitted by the skin of his teeth by the Special Criminal Court for murder. He was also acquitted by the skin of his teeth of the, the, the weapons charges. But he was convicted of the drugs. So that's the question that's being asked today. And older cops who were around at that time in that decision-making are asking the question, who made this decision? Because mm-hmm. this was a wrong decision. Because, you know, Jerry Touch you know, maybe one of the least worst criminals that we have in Ireland and is the nearest thing to an OTC and has a decency about him. But having said that, he's still a major organised crime figure. And his gang were responsible for one of the most outrageous acts of narco-terrorism that we've ever seen. And there was no evidence uh, that he was at the Regency Hotel or that he shot David Byrne. Therefore, because because of the charges he faced, there was no case against him. What they said was, the judge said, and this is again as a criticism of how the state handled the case. Remember, Jonathan Dowdell did not come off this case, did not become officially an informant or a supergrass or a state witness until literally about a few days before the Monk trial. The, the trial he, was due, he was due to go on charge. He was charged originally with murder as well with Jerry Hutch. He was due to go on trial with Hutch. But the, whatever the state did, initially they were, the talk was that he was going to be charged with murder for being a part of the whole conspiracy. Mm. which is a wider, it, it, it's not as difficult, it doesn't narrow it down. But then they put all their eggs in the basket and decided that what Dowler told them, one of his allegations was that Hutch confessed to him that he was there at the hotel and shot David Byrne. So then what happened, uh, the, the state then said, as part of our case, this was the case, that he was in the Regency Hotel. The judges said there just simply wasn't the evidence to sustain that or prove that beyond all reasonable doubt. And even they said that from studying the CCTV that the gunmen, that one of the gunmen, he was, he was supposed to be one of these two gunmen, the fellow's AK-47, the guy was too agile, too sprightly, and too young-looking mm. to be Jerry Hutch. Um, so they couldn't prove, the state didn't prove that any shape, maker, form didn't offer any really strong evidence to prove that he was actually physically there on, on, the, on the day and did the shooting. Right. So... They couldn't accept the word of a liar and a perjurer, uh, but Jonathan Dowdall will go into the witness protection programme. Uh, and you're reporting today that uh, Jerry the Monk Hutch is expected to return to his Spanish villa, celebrate his 60th birthday and uh, continue off the life that he was enjoying. He will. And he, you know, you have to remember as well, to be fair to him, this is why the public have a lot of sympathy towards him. 
he did literally, he had literally decided to retire. He was always a pragmatic, strategic thinker. He's a very wealthy man. He's a lot of property. But he knew when to get out. And he was the one villain who you'd always say had a brain a brain in his head. Uh, and he didn't overstep the mark of all of them that we've ever seen. Uh, but he was driving it as purely based on family and blood uh, and the fact that he was, his nephew was murdered and his nephews were thugs, by the way, and they were drug dealers and, and a business that he has always eschewed and despises. But they dragged him into this because they, all these thugs just fall out amongst each other. Daniel Kinnan and Gary Hutch fell out to try to kill each other and then it all went, blew up in everyone's face and then they tried to kill Jerry Hutch and they tried to kill his brother Patsy and then all the thugs were off and this is what happened. And the judge, mm. the court said yesterday that there were no doubt that the Hutch organized criminal group exists, that it is an entity, and that it was responsible for the Regency Hotel attack. Okay. And that Jerry Hutch was part of that organized criminal group. Good to talk to you, Paul. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. Paul Williams, special correspondent with uh, the Irish Independent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the Ombudsman, Ger Deering, who is publishing a report today called In Sickness and in Debt. That's D-E-B-T, the type of debt uh, that you fall into if you owe money. Uh, because that's what's been happening, uh, apparently, to patients who received healthcare overseas but didn't get reimbursed for the cost of uh, that healthcare by the HSE. Jared Deering, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you've made some 21 recommendations to the HSE, which they say uh, they will implement, uh, but there's obviously been quite a, a number of problems. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for the opportunity to be on. Um, yes, we started receiving complaints some time ago from people who had accessed or tried to access uh, these uh, schemes. And there's a number of schemes, and some in some instances you pay for the treatment yourself up front and it's refunded. In others, the treatment is paid for, but you have to get approval in advance. Um, and the problem we found was that people who were being refused refunds, uh, sometimes it was on the basis of uh, very small errors made by other people, not by the patient themselves. They had gone and had the treatment done and accessed it in good faith. And we all know that it's not, having, it's not easy having any treatment done or any surgery done, but to have to travel abroad for it and then find yourself uh, in debt when you come back because you're perhaps you've borrowed the money from a credit union or perhaps from a relative mm. and you're unable to, to pay it was, was presenting a stress and difficulty for certain people. I'm sure it was. Uh, and some of the treatment, obviously, will be more expensive. Uh, I mean, a lot of people will travel north of the border for cataracts. Uh, but you, you hear people going uh, to Turkey and elsewhere for dental treatment and, indeed, bariatric treatment as a, a weight loss procedure in some Eastern European countries. Uh, and those bills can run into several thousand euro. Yes, but the vast majority of um, patients we were dealing with here, it was for... Um, Two things, really. A treatment that they were on a waiting list for here and just couldn't access because the waiting list was too long. Or in some instances, we had people who had very rare uh, conditions and had to, the treatment wasn't available here, so that treatment had to be accessed abroad. And it was the kind of things that tripped them up that, were, that we were concerned about. For example, in some instances, it would, in, all, in all cases, you must have a referral letter hear from a, a medical specialist, whether that's a GP or a consultant, before you can access and get the treatment. So in some instances, those referral letters from GPs maybe weren't signed 
by the GP, it was signed by their secretary or their receptionist or uh, maybe not dated. And in, in some of these cases, they had actually been emailed. The letter had been emailed to the clinic. So it was obvious uh, that it had come from the GP. Hmm. However, technically, it should have been signed by the GP themselves. Yeah, because it's impossible to give a, a wet signature, I think they call it, uh, in an email. Uh, but if it came from the GP's office, uh, your point, uh, and, and the people who have complained to you, is it was clear that it was coming from the GP. Uh, there was, uh, that, that's very pernickety uh, but there were other uh, similar stories weren't they where uh, it, it wasn't uh, a, an application that was true to the letter of uh, the criteria for qualification Yes, this was the difficulty we had was that in too many cases um, we, we found that the people had done everything in good faith and as I say some something. for example uh, you, you're required to have a prior consultation before you would access the treatment, and that's reasonable, we, we accept that. Uh, but some people interpreted prior consultation as, I will have the consultation with the person, the doctor, this morning, and the doctor performs the procedure in the afternoon. And the HSE took the view that, no, it has to be a consultation on a prior date, which for maybe some simple procedures meant travelling twice, that you had to travel over. And bear in mind, it's important to point out that the travel in most of these schemes, the travel is not refunded. So the fact that you have to travel at your own expense and maybe travel twice when it is a simple procedure and the um, procedure could be done uh, on the same day as the consultation. Mm. Uh, another big issue uh, we found, and this had a major impact for quite a number of people, was people who had pensions from other jurisdictions. And we were talking here mainly people with pensions from the UK. In the early days of the schemes, there was no question on the form, on the application form, to ask, do you have a pension? So, obviously, people didn't feel it was an issue. Um, later, the HSE uh, introduced the question to know if, do you have a pension from another jurisdiction? But they never said what the implications of this question was. So, it was eventually discovered that a number of people, well, firstly, a number of people were refused because they had pensions from other areas, but also some people who had, in fact, already been refunded by the HSE were found that, by the HSE that they weren't entitled to this refund. And then the HSE sought the money be repaid to the HSE. So we intervened at that stage and after considerable um, interaction with the HSE, uh, they agreed not to pursue these people anymore, but they then introduced uh, what was called a first charge, which would mean if you had treatment done at a future date, this would become a charge on that. In other words, it would be taken out of any refund you'd be due. Now, I'm really happy to say that having met Bernard Loster, the new chief executive of the HSE, he has accepted all 21 recommendations and the HSE are now working with us to implement them. And that includes a removal of that first charge so that they will no longer be seeking that money back from people. Okay, Uh, and uh, as you say, some of the bills can be quite large uh, as well. For somebody uh, who had paid themselves and then was refused by the HSE to be reimbursed, uh, is there something that they can do now? Yes, well, they should firstly go to the HSE and um, make a complaint to the HSE about not being reimbursed if they feel they should have been reimbursed. And one of the recommendations that I've put uh, in the report is that uh, a new appeal system should be put in place and a better appeal system should be put in place. So if they're unhappy with the first response they get from the HSE, then they can appeal that through the appeals mechanism. And failing that, if they're still unhappy after that process, they should bring their complaint to our office here. Okay, uh, and uh, if it's for the type of reasons um, where the forms weren't filled out correctly, if you like, um, or proper procedure 
according to the criteria was uh, and followed uh, there still is chance uh, that they will be reimbursed I mean you uh, mentioned a, a couple of cases one in Belgium uh, and one in Poland I think you have to pay for the travel and the accommodation if you go abroad uh, but the treatment should be reimbursed uh, one of the cases uh, was refused reimbursement because the first consultation was in Ireland uh, and in uh, the Polish case uh, a consultation took place by telephone Yes, and I mean, we know that during COVID there were certain procedures put in place where, you know, all a lot of um, medical appointments were done by telephone. So one of the recommendations we've made, again, is in relation to telemedicine and that we, sh- we believe there should be more use of uh, telemedicine and, that, you know, people shouldn't necessarily have to travel twice unless it's absolutely essential. The recommendations range across a broad range of areas from uh, the very start of the process that we would expect the HSE to provide better information to patients who want to access the schemes, uh, improve the application form. I've also dealt with that prior consultation that we believe it should be uh, possible you know, to have it on the same day in certain instances. Uh, another uh, requirement that was in place was that people had to prove have proof of travel, and this was particularly difficult for people who travelled to Northern Ireland. Many of these people are um, pensioners and in fact some people went to Northern Ireland to have cataracts removed and it is most likely that they couldn't drive themselves so they would have had to get somebody else to drive and then you have to get a petrol receipt from that person to show that they actually brought you to Northern Ireland that you did actually travel and the point is this wasn't refunded anyway so again they've agreed that it's no longer a requirement to prove the travel you've simply got to prove that you've had the uh, surgery or the treatment that you've said you've had, that you've paid for it, prove that you've paid for it, and then make your um, application for a refund. Important to point out as well, um, Michael, that mm. not all of them, you, you may not get back all of the money because the, the refund that's given is the equivalent to what it would have cost had it been done in the public system on this side of the border. So that's how it works. So, you know, there's no notion here or no idea here that people can game the system or uh, can, can benefit from this. Only legitimate costs, and in fact, only the cost that it would have cost to have the, the treatment done here uh, is refunded. Okay. Or if it's less than that, that that amount would be refunded too. It's the lesser of the two, yeah. exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, much appreciate your time and uh, joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, the Ombudsman, Ger Deering. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Brian in touch with us about the NCT backlog, wondering why the Road Safety Authority doesn't think of approaching the DOE test centres uh, because they're responsible for testing of commercial vehicles and ask their testers to help address the NCT backlog. They ultimately carry out the same tests just on larger vehicles, so dealing with cars shouldn't be an issue for them. Would this not be an effective way of tackling the backlog? It's certainly an interesting idea, Brian. Uh, I think it probably begs the question, <laughs> would it cause a separate backlog? Would you end up with a backlog in the DOE centres? I don't know. Uh, Noel in our D says he can't believe uh, that uh, we put Bertie Ahern on the air this morning. Noel says he, he shouldn't be given airtime after the damage he did to this country before he walked away as Taoiseach. Thank you indeed, Noel, uh, for that. And uh, I'm sure that there's some people who agree with that. And uh, I think Bertie Hearn has been arguing the toss on, on that uh, in recent interviews, but I, I would imagine, Noel, in fairness, that most people would recognise uh, the very important role that Bertie Hearn played in bringing peace uh, to this island uh, with all of his BS as Bill Clinton 
put it, uh, but it, it was that Bertie Charmer, I think, that talked to a lot of people around back in 1998 and before it and indeed after it. And I, I am sure that history will record uh, the importance of Bertie Hearn's role in the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. But thank you for sharing your thoughts. We uh, like to hear all opinions on the programme. And if you'd like to comment before we finish up today, not too late to ring us now. 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station joins us for this week's report and thank you for doing so. We're going to begin with uh, Missing Persons Appeal. It's a renewed uh, appeal for a couple who haven't been seen for the last eight years, pretty much to to the day for that matter. Yes, Michael. So we're renewing our appeal for any information in relation to William Mohan and Anna Varsalavine. Guardian Ashburn are looking to renew this appeal. It's eight weeks this week, or sorry, it's eight years this week that they have been missing. At the time of the disappearance, they were living between Balbriggan and Gormistown. Willie was 34 years of age at the time of his disappearance, and he was described as being five foot eight of athletic build with shaved head and green eyes. It's not known what he was wearing when he was last seen. Also reported missing was his girlfriend Anastasia or Anna Baslavine, who was 20 years of age when she was reported missing. She's of Latvian origin, but she'd been living in Ireland for a number of years prior to her disappearance. Known as Anna, she was described as being five foot six in height, slim build with long dark hair. Both were known to frequent Balbriggan's, the Mullen and Gormanstown areas and were last known to be in the company. She was last known to be in the company of William Mahon. They were last seen between 2 and 3 o'clock in the Gormanstown area on Tuesday the 14th of April 2015. Anyone with any information is asked to contact Ashburn Garda Station on 018010600 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 one. Yeah, and I think Willie and Anna are presumed to be deceased after having been murdered and I know that the family would very much like to know the whereabouts of their remains if uh, that proves to be the case and any information whatsoever uh, should be given to Angarda Siakana. Uh, we're going to a fatal road traffic collision next. Uh, this occurred in Ethelboy. Yes, so we're investigating a fatal road traffic collision that happened at around 1.20am on Saturday the 8th of April on the N51 in Rathmore and Rathboy. We're looking for any witnesses to this collision to come forward. So any road users that might have camera footage, including dash cam, that were travelling on the N51 in this area between, say, one and half one, are asked to make this footage available to Gardaí. If anybody has any information, they can contact Kells Garda Station on 046-9280820. Right. We've another incident on the roads, a hit and run to report on from Ashburn. Yes, yeah, so the Guardian and Ashburn are investigating a road traffic collision that happened in the early hours of Monday the 10th of April 2013. The collision occurred at approximately 1am and involved a car and a pedestrian and the car failed to remain at the scene. The pedestrian, a lady in her 50s, was treated in James Connolly Memorial Hospital for serious injuries. Michael, two men were arrested um, and a file is being prepared for the DPP. But we are looking to appeal to any witnesses to come forward. Anyone who may have been in the Frederick Street area between 
12.45 and 1.30am and may have witnessed the incident or may have video footage, you ask to contact Gardaí at Ashburn Garda Station on 018010600. We have a, a burglary in Ravensdale to report on next. Yes, on Tuesday the 11th of April between 9.15 and 9.45am, a lady was in her home in Carrickcarran in Ravensdale when she heard noises. She went to investigate and saw a number of males leave through the front door. We believe that there was a grey hatchback involved during this used during this burglary, possibly a 06 or 07. If you were in the area, if you have dash cam footage or if you saw something, however minor you may think it was, we're asking you to contact the investigation team at Hackballs Cross Guard Station on 042-9377-142. And there's a, another robbery from uh, the Dundalk area that uh, you wish to report on this week too? Yes, so on Saturday last, the 15th of April, just before 9am, a lone male entered Bar 1 Racing on Peter Street in Dundalk. He was armed with an arm bar and demanded the staff hand over cash. This male was seen leaving in the direction of Barrick Street, carrying a bag and wearing some sort of headgear. The investigation team at Dundalk Garda Station would like to speak to anyone who was in the area between 8.30 and 9.30pm. You can contact them on 042 9388400. Okay, and we're going to conclude with some property that actually has been recovered and uh, is uh, available if uh, the rightful owner is listening this morning. Absolutely. So, Gardaí and Navin recovered some garden equipment just after midday on Saturday, the 15th of April, in the Black Hassle area of Navin. It was seized as we suspected it was stolen. If it belongs to you, or if you think you know who the owner is, you're asked to contact Navin Garda Station on 046. 9036100. Okay, thank you indeed. Garda Bacon of Trim Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, uh, Noel put out earlier on, uh, because he heard from Bertie Ahern. Uh, sorry, Noel, but I think we're going to hear some more from Bertie Ahern uh, and the events uh, that led to that historic accord, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Well, I suppose the troubles had gone on so long and um, all of us, Albert Reynolds before me, John Major, you know, it, it was just an issue you felt you, you had to try. And of course, you're meeting all the, all the party leaders and, you, you know, I was meeting John, meeting Jerry, and uh, me, me, meeting um, all of the political leaders. And um, I was lucky enough to meet you, um, President, when you came over in 95. I was leader of the opposition, so. Uh, I, I, I was to get 10 minutes with you up in the um, in the ambassador's uh, residence in Phoenix Park and you gave me an hour. Uh, you obviously had nothing to do that day, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 but, and then I, I, I had gotten to know Tony well and we, we had met in Dublin. We, we'd met in the Gresham Hotel was the first time I'd met Tony and, and we'd met in, 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 um, in, in both parliaments. Uh, so I, I felt, you know, listen this was worth it and Tony had made it very clear he was going to give this a real crack. His first speech even though he, you know, was huge celebrations coming in as the Labour Prime Minister you know, huge crowds and the first thing he did was come to Northern Ireland so I mean he couldn't be, show more serious intent than, than that he went to the Balmoral Agricultural Show and um, my, my job uh, he, he has a big farm in Chequers as well <laughs> but but we, 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 we got working on it and I think you know we went back and 
met you, Jerry. Well, the thing was to get the ceasefire back on track and 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 to get get moving. So I think from then on, you know, from that summer of '97, all the way up to Good Friday, like it, it seemed like every day, but it was certainly every week. Uh, I hold a record which will never be beaten of the Irish Prime Minister, Irish T-shirt that was in uh, number ten more than anywhere else. I can tell you that. I was, I was there every week, and the food was always good, unlike Castle Buildings. And uh, so, so I think that's how it got going. So the relationship was good, and and of course, President, whenever whenever ever we needed you, sometimes it said you stayed up all night in the last few days, but the reality was you were you were there all the time for us, and I think that's how the relationship developed. Really. That's Bertie Hearn sharing some of his memories uh, from 1998 and indeed uh, before and afterwards for that matter in Queen's University yesterday. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray uh, was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.